Chapter Three of the History of Pendennis. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to find out how you can volunteer, please visit www.librivox.org. Recording by Winston Coltart. The History of Pendennis by William Makepeace Thackeray. Chapter Three in which Pendennis appears as a very young man indeed. Arthur was about sixteen years old, we have said, when he began to reign. In person, for I see that the artist who is to illustrate this book, and who makes sad work of the likeness, will never be able to take him off. He had what his friends would call a dumpy, but his mother styled a neat little figure. His hair was of a healthy brown colour, which looks like gold in the sunshine. His face was round, rosy, freckled, and good-humoured. His whiskers, when those facial ornaments for which he sighed so ardently were awarded to him by nature, were decidedly of a reddish hue. In fact, without being a beauty, he had such a frank, good-natured, kind face, and laughed so merrily at you out of his honest blue eyes that no wonder Mrs. Pendennis thought him the pride of the whole county. Between the ages of sixteen and eighteen, he rose from five feet six to five feet eight inches in height, at which altitude he paused. But his mother wondered at it. He was three inches taller than his father. Was it possible that any man could grow to be three inches taller than Mr. Pendennis? You may be certain, he never went back to school. The discipline of the establishment did not suit him, and he liked being at home much better. The question of his return was debated, and his uncle was for his going back. The doctor wrote his opinion that it was most important for Arthur's success in afterlife that he should know a Greek play thoroughly. But Penn adroitly managed to hint to his mother what a dangerous place Greyfriars was, and what sad fellows some of the chaps there were, and the timid soul, taking alarm at once, acceded to his desire to stay at home. Then Penn's uncle offered to use his influence with his royal highness, the commander-in-chief, who was pleased to be very kind to him, and proposed to get Penn a commission in the foot guards. Penn's heart leapt at this. He had been to hear the band at St. James's play on a Sunday, when he went out to his uncle. He had seen Tom Ricketts of the fourth form, who used to wear a jacket and trousers so ludicrously tight that the elder boys could not forbear using him in the quality of a butt or cockshy. He had seen this very Ricketts, arrayed in crimson and gold, with an immense bearskin cap on his head, staggering under the colours of the regiment. Tom had recognised him and gave him a patronising nod. Tom, a little wretch whom he had cut over the back with a hockey-stick last quarter, and there he was in the centre of the square, rallying around the flag of his country, surrounded by bayonets, cross-belts, and scarlet, the band blowing trumpets and banging cymbals, talking familiarly to immense warriors with tufts to their chins and Waterloo medals. What would not Penn have given to wear such epaulets and enter such a service? But Helen Pendennis, when this point was proposed to her by her son, put on a face full of terror and alarm. 
she said she did not quarrel with others who thought differently, but that in her opinion a Christian had no right to make the army a profession. Mr. Pendennis never, never would have permitted his son to be a soldier. Finally, she said she would be very unhappy if he thought of it. Now Penn would have as soon cut off his nose and ears as deliberately, and of a forethought malice, made his mother unhappy. And as he was of such a generous disposition that he would give away anything to anyone, he instantly made a present of his visionary red coat and epaulets and his ardour for military glory to his mother. She thought him the noblest creature in the world. But Major Pendennis, when the offer of the commission was acknowledged and refused, wrote back a curt and somewhat angry letter to the widow, and thought his nephew was rather a spoony. He was contented, however, when he saw the boys' performances out hunting at Christmas, when the major came down, as usual, to Fair Oaks. Penn had a very good mare, and rode her with uncommon pluck and grace. He took his fences with great coolness, and yet with judgment, and without bravado. He wrote to the chaps at school about his top boots, and his feats across country. He began to think seriously of a scarlet coat, and his mother must own that she thought it would become him remarkably well. Though, of course, she passed hours of anguish during his absence, and daily expected to see him brought home on a shutter. With these amusements, in rather too great plenty, it must not be assumed that Penn neglected his studies altogether. He had a natural taste for reading every possible kind of book which did not fall into his school course. It was only when they forced his head into the waters of knowledge that he refused to drink. He devoured all the books at home, from Inchbold's Theatre to White's Ferriary. He ransacked the neighbouring bookcases. He found at Clavering an old cargo of French novels, which he read with all his might, and he would sit for hours perched upon the topmost bar of Dr. Portman's library steps, with a folio on his knees, whether it was Hakelut's Travels, Hobbes' Leviathan, Augustine Opera, or Chaucer's Poems. He and the vicar were very good friends, and from his reverence Penn learned that honest taste for port wine which distinguished him through life. And as for that dear good woman, Mrs. Portman, who was not in the least jealous, though her doctor avowed himself in love with Mrs. Pendennis, whom he pronounced to be by far the finest lady in the county. All her grief was, as she looked up fondly at Penn perched on the book ladder, that her daughter Minnie was too old for him, as indeed she was. Miss Myra Portman, being at that period only two years younger than Penn's mother, and weighing as much as Penn and Mrs. Pendennis together. Are these details insipid? Look back, good friend, at your own youth, and ask how was that? I like to think of a well-nurtured boy, brave and gentle, warm-hearted and loving, and looking the world in the face with kind, honest eyes. What bright colours it wore then, and how you enjoyed it. A man has not many years of such time. He does not know them whilst they are with him. 
It is only when they are passed long away that he remembers how dear and happy they were. In order to keep Mr. Penn from indulging in that idleness, of which his friend, the doctor of the Cistereans, had prophesied such awful consequences, Mr. Smirk, Dr. Portman's curate, was engaged at a liberal salary to walk or ride over from Clavering and pass several hours daily with the young gentleman. Smirk was a man perfectly faultless at a tea-table, wore a curl on his fair forehead, and tied his neckcloth with a melancholy grace. He was a decent scholar and mathematician, and taught Penn as much as the lad was ever disposed to learn, which was not much, for Penn had soon taken the measure of his tutor, who, when he came riding into the courtyard at Fair Oaks on his pony, turned out his toes so absurdly, and left such a gap between his knees and the saddle, that it was impossible for any lad endowed with a sense of humour to respect such an equestrian. He nearly killed Mr. Smirk with terror by putting him on his mare and taking him a ride over a common where the county foxhounds, then bunted by that staunch old sportsman, Mr. Hardhead of Dumpling Bear, happened to meet. Mr. Smirk, on Penn's mare, Rebecca, she was named after Penn's favourite heroine, the daughter of Isaac of York, astounded the hounds, as much as he disgusted the huntsman, laming one of the former, by persisting in riding amongst the pack, and receiving a speech from the latter, more remarkable for energy of language than any oration he had ever heard since he left the bargemen on the banks of Isis. Smirk confided to his pupil his poems, both Latin and English, and presented to Mrs. Pendennis a volume of the latter, printed at Clapham, his native place. The two read the ancient poems together, and rattled through them at a pleasant rate, very different from that steady, grubbing pace with which the Cistereans used to go over the classic ground, scenting out each word as they went, and digging up every root in the way. Penn never liked to halt, but made his tutor construe when he was at fault. And thus galloped through the Iliad and the Odyssey, the tragic playwriters, writers, and the charming wicked Aristophanes, whom he vowed to be the greatest poet of all. But he went at such a pace, that though he certainly galloped through a considerable extent of the ancient country, he clean forgot it in afterlife, and had only such a vague remembrance of his early classic course as a man has in the House of Commons, let us say, who still keeps up two or three quotations, or a reviewer who, just for decency's sake, hints at a little Greek. Our people are the most prosaic in the world, but the most faithful, and with curious reverence we keep up and transmit from generation to generation the superstition of what we call the education of a gentleman. Besides the ancient poets, you may be sure Penn read the English with great gusto. Smirk sighed and shook his head sadly, both about Byron and Moore. But Penn was a sworn fire-worshipper and a corsair. He had them by heart, and used to take little Laura into the window and say, Zuleika, I am not thy brother, in tones so tragic 
that they caused the solemn little maid to open her great eyes still wider. She sat until the proper hour for retirement, sewing at Mrs. Pendennis's knee, and listening to Penn reading out to her of nights without comprehending one word of what he read. He read Shakespeare to his mother, which he said she liked, but didn't, and Byron and Pope, and his favourite, Lalla Rook, which pleased her indifferently. But as for Bishop Herber, and Mrs. Hemans above all, this lady used to melt right away, and be absorbed into her pocket-handkerchief when Penn read those authors to her in his kind, boyish voice. The Christian Year was a book which appeared about that time. The son and the mother whispered it to each other with awe. Faint, very faint, and seldom in afterlife, Pendennis heard that solemn church music. But he always loved the remembrance of it, and of the times when it struck on his heart, and he walked over the fields full of hope and void of doubt as the church bells rang on a Sunday morning. It was at this period of his existence that Penn broke out in the poet's corner of the county chronicle with some verses with which he was perfectly well satisfied. His are the verses signed N.E.P. addressed to a tear on the anniversary of the Battle of Waterloo to Madame Caradori singing at the Assize meetings on St. Bartholomew's Day a tremendous denunciation of popery and a solemn warning to the people of England to rally against emancipating the Roman Catholics, etc., etc., all of which masterpieces Mrs. Pendennis no doubt keeps to this day, along with his first socks, the first cutting of his hair, his bottle, and other interesting relics of his infancy. He used to gallop Rebecca over the... <clears throat> He used to gallop Rebecca over the neighbouring dumpling downs, went to the county town, which, if you please, we shall call Chatteris, spouting his own poems, and filled with a Byronic afflatus, as he thought. His genius at this time was of a decidedly gloomy cast. He brought his mother a tragedy, in which, though he killed sixteen people before the second act, it made her laugh so, that he thrust the masterpiece into the fire in a pet. He projected an epic poem in blank verse, Cortez, or the Conqueror of Mexico and the Inca's Daughter. He wrote part of Seneca, or the Fatal Birth, and Ariadne in Naxos, classical pieces with choruses and strophes and antistrophes, which sadly puzzled poor Mrs. Pendennis, and began a history of the Jesuits, in which he lashed that order with a tremendous severity and warned his Protestant fellow-countrymen of their machinations. His loyalty did his mother's heart good to witness. He was a staunch, unflinching church and king man in those days, and at the election, when Sir Giles Beanfield stood at the blue interest against Lord Treehawk, Lord Irie's son, a Whig and a friend of Popery, Arthur Dennis, with an immense bow for himself, which his mother made, and with a ribbon for Rebecca, rode alongside of the Reverend Dr. Portman on his grey mare Dowdy, and at the head of the clavering voters, whom the doctor brought up to plump for the Protestant champion.
On that day, Penn made his first speech at the Blue Hotel, and also, it appears, for the first time in his life, took a little more wine than was good for him. Mercy! What a scene it was at Fair Oaks when he rode back, at ever so much o'clock at night. What moving about of lanterns in the courtyard and stables, though the moon was shining out. What a gathering of servants, as Penn came home, clattering over the bridge and up the stable yard, with half a score of the clavering voters yelling after him the blue song of the election. He wanted them all to come in and have some wine. Some very good Madeira. Some capital Madeira. John, go get some Madeira. And there's no knowing what the farmers would have done had not Madame Pendennis made her appearance in a white wrapper with a candle, and scared those zealous blues so by the sight of her pale handsome face that they touched their hats and rode off. Besides these amusements and occupations in which Mr. Penn indulged, there was one which forms the main business and pleasure of youth, if the poets tell us aright, whom Penn was always studying. And this young fellow's heart was so ardent, and his imagination so eager, that it is not to be expected he should long escape the passion to which we allude, and which, ladies, you have rightly guessed to be that of love. Penn sighed for it in secret, and like the lovesick swain in Ovid, opened his breath and said, Ora veni, what generous youth is there that has not courted some such windy mistress in his time? Yes, Penn began to feel the necessity of a first love, of a consuming passion, of an object on which he could concentrate all those vague floating fancies under which he sweetly suffered, of a young lady to whom he could really make verses, and whom he could set up and adore, in place of those unsubstantial Ianthes and Zilekas to whom he addressed the outpourings of his gushing muse. He read his favourite poems over and over again. He called upon Alma Venice, the delight of gods and men, he translated Anacreon's odes, and picked out passages suitable to his complaint for Waller, Dryden, Prior, and the like. Smirk and he were never weary in their interviews of discoursing about love. The faithless tutor entertained him with sentimental conversations in place of lectures on algebra and Greek, for Smirk was in love too. He couldn't help it, being in daily intercourse with such a woman. Smirk was madly in love, as far as such a mild flame as Mr. Smirk's could be called madness, with Mrs. Pendennis. That honest lady, sitting down below stairs, teaching little Laura to play the piano, or devising flannel petticoats for the poor round about her, or otherwise busied with the calm routine of her modest and spotless Christian life, was little aware what storms were brewing in two bosoms upstairs in the study. In pens, as he sate in his shooting jacket, with his elbows on the green study table, and his hands clutching his curly brown hair, Homer under his nose, and in worthy Mr. Smirks, with whom he was reading. Here they would talk about Helen, 
and Andromash. Andromash is like my mother, Pen used to avouch. But I say, Smirk, by Jove, I'd cut off my nose to see Helen. And he would spout certain favourite lines which the reader will find in their proper place in the third book. He had drew portraits of her. They are extant still, with straight noses and enormous eyes, and Arthur Pendennis, delineavit et pinxit, gallantly written underneath. As for Mr. Smirk, he naturally preferred Andromash, and in consequence, he was uncommonly kind to Penn. He gave him his Elzevir Horace, of which the boy was fond, and his little Greek testament, which his own mamma at Clapham had purchased and presented to him. He bought him a silver pencil case, and in the matter of learning, let him do just as much or as little as ever he pleased. He always seemed to be on the point of unbosoming himself to Penn. Nay, he confessed to the latter that he had a, an attachment, an ardently cherished attachment, about which Pendennis longed to hear and said, Tell us, old chap, is she handsome? Has she got blue eyes or black? But Dr. Portman's curate, heaving a gentle sigh, cast up his eyes to the ceiling and begged Pen faintly to change the conversation. Poor Smirk. He invited Pen to dine at his lodgings over Madame Frisby's, the milliner's, in Clavering, and once when it was raining, Mrs. Pendennis, who had driven in her pony chaise into Clavering, with respect to some engagements, about leaving off mourning, probably, was prevailed upon to enter the curate's apartments. He sent out for pound-cakes instantly. The sofa on which he sate became sacred to him from that day, and he kept flowers in the glass which he drank from ever after. As Mrs. Pendennis was never tired of hearing the praises of her son, we may be certain that this rogue of a tutor neglected no opportunity of conversing with her upon that subject. It might be a little tedious to him to hear the stories about Penn's generosity, about his bravery in fighting the big naughty boy, about his fun and jokes, about his prodigious skill in Latin, music, riding, etc. But what price would he not pay to be in her company? And the widow, after these conversations, thought Mr. Smirk a very pleasing and well-informed man. As for her son, she had not settled in her mind whether he would be senior wrangler an Archbishop of Canterbury, or double first class at Oxford, and Lord Chancellor. That all England did not possess his peer was a fact about which there was in her mind no manner of question. A simple person of inexpressive habits, she began forthwith to save, and perhaps to be a little parsimonious in favour of her boy. There were no entertainments, of course, at Fair Oaks during the year of her weeds. Nor, indeed, did the doctor's silver dish covers, of which he was so proud, and which were flourished all over with the arms of the Pendennises, and surmounted with their crests, come out of the plate chests again for long, long years. The household was diminished, and its expenses curtailed. There was a very blank anchorate repast when Penn dined from home 
and he himself headed the remonstrance from the kitchen regarding the deteriorated quality of the fair oak's beer she was becoming miserly for pen indeed whoever accused woman of being just they are always sacrificing themselves or somebody for somebody else's sake there happened to be no young woman in the small circle of friends who were in the widow's intimacy whom pendennis could by any possibility gratify by endowing her with the inestimable treasure of a heart which he was longing to give away some young fellows in his predicament bestow their young affections upon dolly the dairymaid or cast the eyes of tenderness upon molly the blacksmith's daughter pen thought of pendennis much too grand a personage to stoop so low he was too high-minded for a vulgar intrigue and at the end of an intrigue or a seduction had he ever entertained it his heart would have revolted as from the notion of any act of baseness or dishonour miss minnie portman was too old too large and too fond of reading Rowland's ancient history the miss boardbacks admirable boardbacks daughters of st vincent's of fourth of june house as it was called <clears throat> the miss boardbacks admirable boardbacks daughters of st vincent's or fourth of june house as it was called disgusted pen with the london airs which they brought into the country from gloucester place where they passed the season and looked down upon in as a chit captain glanders's h p fiftieth dragoon guards three girls were in brown holland pinafores as yet with the ends of their hair plaits tied up in dirty pink ribbon not having acquired the art of dancing the youth avoided such chances as he might have of meeting with the fair sex at the chatteris assemblies in fine he was not in love because there was nobody at hand to fall in love with and the young monkey used to ride out day after day in quest of dulcinea and peep into the pony chaises and gentlefolks carriages as they drove along the broad turnpike roads with a heart beating within him and a secret tremor and hope that she might be in that yellow post-chaise coming swinging up the hill or one of those three girls in beaver bonnets in the back seat of the double gig which the fat old gentleman in black was driving at four miles an hour the post-chaise contained a snuffy old dowager of seventy with a maid her contemporary the three girls in the beaver bonnets were no handsomer than the turnips that skirted the roadside do as he might and ride where he would the fairy princess that he was to rescue and win had not yet appeared to honest pen upon these points he did not discourse to his mother he had a world of his own what generous ardent imaginative soul has not a secret pleasure place in which it disports let no clumsy prying or dull meddling of ours try to disturb it in our children actaeon was a brute for wanting to push in where diana was bathing leave him occasionally alone my good madam if you have a poet for a child even your admirable advice may be a bore sometimes you are faultless but it does not follow that everybody in your family is to think exactly like yourself yonder little child may have thoughts too deep 
even for your great mind, and fancies so coy and timid that they will not bear themselves when your ladyship sits by. Helen Pendennis, by the force of sheer love, divined a great number of her son's secrets. But she kept these things in her heart, if we may so speak, and did not speak of them. Besides, she had made up her mind that he was to marry little Laura, who would be eighteen when Penn was six and twenty, and had finished his college career, and had made his grand tour, and was settled either in London, astonishing all the metropolis by his learning and eloquence at the bar, or better still, in a sweet country parsonage, surrounded with hollyhocks and roses, close to a delightful romantic ivy-covered church, from the pulpit of which Penn would utter the most beautiful sermons ever preached. While these natural sentiments were waging war and trouble in honest Penn's bosom, it chanced one day that he rode into Chatteris for the purpose of carrying to the county chronicle a tremendous and thrilling poem for the next week's paper, and putting up his horse according to custom at the stables of the George Hotel there, he fell in with an old acquaintance. A grand black tandem with scarlet wheels came rattling into the inn-yard, as Penn stood there in converse with the holster about Rebecca, and the voice of the driver called out, "'Hello, Penn Dennis. Is that you?' in a loud, patronising manner. Penn had some difficulty in recognising under the broad-brimmed hat and the vast great coats and neckcloths with which the newcomer was habited, the person and figure of his quondam schoolmate, Mr. Foker. A year's absence had made no small difference in that gentleman. A youth, who had been deservedly whipped a few months previously, who spent his pocket-money on tarts and hard-bake, now appeared before Penn in one of those costumes to which the public consent, that I take to be quite as influential in this respect as Johnson's Dictionary, has awarded the title of Swell. He had a bulldog between his legs, and in the scarlet shawl neckcloth was a pin representing another bulldog in gold. He wore a fur waistcoat, laced over with gold chains, a green cutaway coat with basket buttons, and a white upper coat ornamented with cheese plate buttons, on each of which was engraved some stirring incident of the road or the chase all of which ornaments set off this young fellow's figure to such advantage that you would hesitate to say which character in life he most resembled, and whether he was a boxer in Gorget, or a coachman in his gala suit. "'Left that place for good, Pendennis,' Mr. Foker said, descending from his landu, and giving Pendennis a finger. "'Yes, this year, or more,' Penn said. "'Beastly old hole!' Mr. Foker remarked, hate it, hate the doctor, hate Towser, the second master, hate everybody there, not a fit place for a gentleman. Not at all, said Penn, with an air of the utmost consequence. By gad, sir, I sometimes dream now that the doctor's walking into me, Foker continued, and Penn smiled as he thought that he himself had likewise fearful dreams of this nature. When I think of the diet there, by gad, sir, I wonder how I stood it. Mangy mutton, brutal beef, 
pudding on Thursdays and Sundays, and that fit to poison you. Just look at my leader. Did you ever see a pretty animal? Drove her from Baymouth. Came the nine mile in two and forty minutes. Not bad going, sir. Are you stopping at Baymouth, Foker? Pendennis asked. I'm coaching there, said the other with a nod. What? asked Penn, and in a tone of such wonder that Foker burst out laughing and said he was blowed if he didn't think Penn was such a flat as not to know what coaching meant. I'm come down with a coach from Oxford. A tutor, don't you see, old boy? He's coaching me, and some other men, for the little go. Me and Spaven have the drag between us, and I thought I'd just tool over and go to the play. Did you ever see Rokens do the hornpipe? And Mr. Foker began to perform some steps of that popular dance in the inn-yard, looking round for the sympathy of his groom and the stablemen. Penn thought he would like to go to the play, too, and could ride home afterwards, as there was moonlight. So he accepted Foker's invitation to dinner, and the young men entered the inn together, where Mr. Foker stopped at the bar, and called upon Miss Rincer, the landlady's fair daughter, who presided there, to give him a glass of his mixture. Penn and his family had been known at the George ever since they came into the country, and Mr. Pendennis's carriages and horses always put up there when he paid a visit to the county town. The landlady dropped the air of Fair Oaks a very respectful curtsy, and complimented him upon his growth and manly appearance, and asked news of the family at Fair Oaks, and of Dr. Portman, and the Clavering people, to all of which questions the young gentleman answered with much affability. But he spoke to Mr. and Mrs. Rincer, with that sort of good nature with which a young prince addresses his father's subjects, never dreaming that those bonjens were his equals in life. Mr. Foker's behaviour was quite different. He inquired for Rincer, and the cold in his nose, told Mrs. Rincer a riddle, asked Miss Rincer when she would be ready to marry him, and paid his compliments to Miss Bennet, the other young lady in the bar, all in a minute of time, and with a liveliness and facetiousness which set all these ladies in a giggle, and he gave a cluck expressive of great satisfaction as he tossed off his mixture, which Miss Rincer prepared and handed to him. Have a drop, said he to Penn. It's recommended to me by the faculty, as a what do you call him? A stomatic old boy. Give the young one a glass, ah, and score it up to yours truly. Poor Penn took a glass, and everybody laughed at the face that he made as he put it down. Gin, bitters, and some other cordial was the compound with which Mr. Foker was so delighted as to call it by the name of Foker's own. As Penn choked, sputtered, and made faces, the other took occasion to remark to Mr. Rincer that the young fellow was green, very green, but that he would soon form him, and then they proceeded to order dinner which Mr. Foker determined should consist of turtle and venison, cautioning the landlady to be very particular about icing the wine. Then Messrs. Foker and Penn strolled down the high street together, the former having a cigar in his mouth, which he had drawn out of a case almost as big as a portmanteau. He went in to replenish it at Mr. Lennis's, and talked to that gentleman for a while, sitting down on the counter, 
he then looked in at the fruiterers to see the pretty girl there to whom he played compliments similar to those before addressed to the bar at the george then they passed the county chronicle office for which Penn had his packet ready in the shape of lines to thyrisa but poor Penn did not like to put the letter into the editor's box while walking in company with such a fine gentleman as mr foker they met heavy dragoons of the regiment always quartered at chatteris and stopped and talked about the baymouth bulls and what a pretty girl was miss brown and what a dem fine woman mrs jones was it was in vain that Penn recalled to his own mind what a stupid ass Foker used to be at school, how he could scarcely read, how he was not cleanly in his person, and notorious for his blunders and dullness. Mr. Foker was no more like a gentleman now than in his school days, and yet Penn felt a secret pride in strutting down High Street with a young fellow who owned tandems, talked to officers, and ordered turtle and champagne for dinner. He listened and with respect, too, to Foker's accounts of what the men did at the university, of which Mr. F. was an ornament, and encountered a long series of stories about boat-racing, bumping, college grass-plats, and milk-punch, and began to wish to go to college himself, to a place where there were many such pleasures and enjoyments. Farmer Gurnett, who lived close by Fair Oaks, riding by at this minute, and touching his hat to Penn, the latter stopped him, and sent him a message to his mother to say that he had met with an old schoolfellow and should dine in Chatteris. The two young gentlemen continued their walk, and were passing round the cathedral yard where they could hear the music of the afternoon service, a music which always exceedingly impressed and affected Penn. But whither Mr. Foker came for the purpose of inspecting the nursery maids who frequent the Elms Walk there, and who are uncommonly pretty at Chatteris, and here they strolled until, with a final burst of music, the small congregation was played out. Old Dr. Portman was one of the few who came from the venerable gate. Spying Penn, he came and shook him by the hand, and eyed with wonder Penn's friend, from whose mouth and cigar clouds of fragrance issued, which curled round the doctor's honest face and shovel hat. An old school friend of mine, Mr. Foker, said Penn. The doctor said, Hmm, and scowled at the cigar. He did not mind a pipe in his study, but the cigar was an abomination to the worthy gentleman. I came up on Bishop's business, the doctor said. We'll ride home, Arthur, if you like. I, I'm engaged to my friend here, Penn answered. You better come home with me, said the doctor. His mother knows he's out, sir, Mr. Folk remarked. Don't she, Pendennis? But that does not prove that he had not better come home with me, the doctor growled, and walked off with great dignity. Old boy don't like the weed, I suppose, Foker said. Ha, who's here? Here's the general and Bingley, the manager. How do, Coss? How do, Bingley? How does my worthy and gallant Foker, said the gentleman addressed as the general, and who wore a shabby military cape with a mangy collar and a hat cocked very much over one eye. Trust you are well, my dear sir, said the other gentleman, 
and that the Theatre Royal will have the honour of your patronage tonight. We perform The Stranger, in which your humble servant will... Can't stand you in tights and hessians, Bingley, young Foker said, on which the general, with the Irish accent, said, But I think you'll like Miss Fotheringay, Mrs. Haller. Well, my name's not Jack Costigan. Penn looked at these individuals with the greatest interest. He had never seen an actor before, and he saw Mr. Portman's red face looking over the doctor's shoulder as he retreated from the cathedral yard, evidently quite dissatisfied with the acquaintances into whose hands Penn had fallen. Perhaps it would have been much better for him had he taken the parson's advice and company home. But which of us knows his fate? End of chapter 3